Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mike on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Finnish conductor who, like me, started out as a violinist, but then went on to study conducting with some of the biggest names in the profession. She was the first female to be appointed as the music director of a Finnish orchestra, and earlier this year, she became the principal conductor of the BBC Concert Orchestra. It's a great pleasure to welcome Anna Maria Helsing. Anna Maria, it's wonderful to meet you, to see you, and to chat with you this afternoon. How are you? Thank you. Hi, I'm fine. It's uh, lovely to be a guest in your podcast. It's wonderful to welcome you onto it. I know before I press record that you're in Jakobstadt in Finland, which is where you ended up getting your violin diploma, um, which is near where you're from. And I wonder, I always go straight the way back, and I know that you're a violinist, but was that the first instrument? And uh, parents, family, are they musical at all? How did music come into your life? Uh, lots of questions there at once. <laughs> they are all uh, musical, my whole family. Mm. But I was the first one uh, becoming a musician as a profession. Mm. Uh, the, my parents worked with other things. Um, and this is, I'm actually sitting in the music school where I started uh, taking lessons myself uh, pretty long ago mm-hmm. already and it was actually a funny story about it because my family didn't know that there was a music school in the city we lived in the village 30 kilometers from here and uh, I skipped the first grade in school I didn't have to do it because I already could read and write and stuff and they tested me and they said you can go straight on to the second grade and for that reason, I never got the note from the music school that every first grader got. <laughs> so only when my younger sister, uh, four years later or five years later, started the first grade, she came home with this invitation, come and try to be accepted to the music school. And then we were like, what? Music school? That should suit me as well. Because, yeah. of course, I played the piano at home and I played the violin with my dad and that's how it started. So very late, I was 11 mm. when that happened. Then I started taking lessons and then I, in a quite a good speed, did all yeah. the music school stuff. Well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I was a violinist as well. I was a professional violinist for 22, 23 years. And I didn't start until I was nine years old. And I think for some of us, if you find the instrument that you love, you can be very quick. I mean, I know, you know, for instance, the principal clarinet of the CBSO currently didn't start playing the clarinet until he was 17 years old. Um, you know, I mean, he, and he, he was in the job six years later or something like that. So it can happen. Um, but I mean, it does help that you're, you know, as you said, your music was something that was around at home and you were already playing the piano a bit. Um, and the violin. And the yeah. violin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, by getting into music school, I'm assuming you're then in chamber groups and ensembles and orchestras and it was where you were probably for the first time encountering conductors um any of those people from that time that you still look back on fondly and think yeah I probably in the back of my mind learned things from them oh of course many of them I I, if you know we should be uh, we should be honest about things and I also learned a lot of things that you shouldn't do of yes, course, of course. <laughs> it, goes, it goes both ways yeah. because um, it was different back then. And, but no, I, I absolutely loved the music school uh, and I, I even adored scales and uh, studies and stuff. All these things that was boring to everyone. I thought they were so mm. beautiful and 
um, when I played scales, my teacher used to sit at the piano and put harmonizing yes. to those long notes. And I thought it was fantastic. And also the string orchestras that I attended. Um, absolutely everything was great about realizing how, how fantastic it is to play, to, to play together. Mm. So although I can look back sometimes and think that, well, maybe the level of the pedagogic um how to say yeah the pedagogy was not always very high it still uh, got me interested and attracted to it and it it did what it should yeah. actually so i'm uh, forever grateful to all people who were involved and what were your ambitions thoughts going you know as you grew up late teens did you want to be a performing violinist or had conducting already entered into your world by then? Well, actually, I was equally, back then I was equally advanced in the piano and the violin. Yeah. And I think the piano was somewhat a little bit easier for me. I was maybe even more talented as a pianist, but it was the orchestra that made my choice then quite mm. easy in the end. I. I couldn't imagine becoming a pianist and not sit inside the orchestra and experience all of that mm. repertoire. So, of course, it was early on shown to me that orchestra is my my big passion. But uh, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine myself as a conductor. I was conducting at home, of course, to the stereo, as everybody yes. did, for yeah. Dad's LP records. But that came later. Yeah. Um, it sounds a little bit like, you know, wh when I retired from being a violinist in 2014, having spent 22 years doing it professionally, I looked back and thought, do you know what? I don't think the violin was actually the thing I was in love with. It was the orchestra, um, which is yeah. why, you know, I ended up taking up conducting because I loved orchestral music and I loved the orchestra as an entity, as a being. Do you think that was the same for you? Is that, it, you know, it could have been a clarinet, it could have been the timpani, it could have been a double bass, but it was the orchestra that you fell in love with. It was a little bit like that, but I think, I, to be fair, I also fell in love with the violin. Yeah. I was quite a nerd uh, for many years. <laughs> well, any, so really... anybody, who, anybody who enjoys playing scales and studies must have yeah. fallen in love with the violin. <laughs> I never enjoyed yeah. those at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> Even when I taught the violin, I, I, I hated them when, when I had to do a scales and a study lesson. I was, oh, no. Um, but... uh, something with the sound, something with... I, I, also later on in life I realized that playing scales um, is somehow for me it's not a, also tuning the violin it's not only the violin I'm tuning I'm tuning myself it's sort mm. of now I relax now I put away the worries of the day or the practicality so when you tune it and when you start with scales it's like oh here I am <laughs> sort of coming home or yeah. whatever uh, I'm going to jump a mile ahead, and I, I don't think I've ever, I've rarely asked this question, but do you still play? Because I don't at all. I mean, there is one on my sitting on my desk to my right, but which I occasionally pick up to check a Boeing. But you're, you're, you're yeah. And I you... tried during my time as a conductor. I've come back to it time yeah. and time again, like just for those scales and for the touch of being in touch with my own instrument again. But it's somehow too hard and I don't like traveling with the violin anymore mm. because I'm still carrying so much extra weight and it's like I don't need that extra bag yeah yeah so 
So no, I, I pick it up when somebody invites me to a wedding or a funeral or something, and they <laughs> want me to play a song. I, I do it, and I. Yeah, I've got I've got two daughters who, at some point, you know, I'm sure. Uh, uh, there will be a wed weddings on the cards, and I think uh, no, it's already. I've already promised I'll play, so I can't let it go completely um, uh, oh, out you. of touch. Yeah, I'm gonna have to learn some at least to play in, in, in wedding ceremonies. Um, <laughs> conducting, there's one huge name that leaps off the page when I look at your biography, who, who you study with, and many others who I'll come to in a minute about masterclasses and other thing, but. You studied with Leif Segerstam. So how did conducting and moving from the violin to conducting and studying with Leif Segerstam happen? Well, I had always, as a violin teacher, always had also youth orchestras mm. in many different settings. And I'm a Swedish-speaking Finn, and oh. we have also, for Swedish-speaking Finns, there are specific music courses during summer. And we tend to take care of those youth, uh, yeah. gather them together because we're a minority in Finland. Yes, There are only like 300,000 of us, 5% of the population. So it's good to have that uh, community feeling. Mm. So as I, as a young person, uh, used to travel to Helsinki to play in the Vigelius Chamber Orchestra, I then when I came back from Poland, doing my diploma as a violinist in Poland, then when I came back, I started up for those who were young then, another yeah. Vigelius Chamber Strings. So I always, uh, I was active with these kind of orchestras, and I used to sometimes conduct uh, with the violin from the mm. sitting position, and sometimes in front of the orchestra but then after the diplomas when I realized I'm going into the profession uh, I realized that actually conducting is maybe something I should look into mm. and I got some possibilities with my own orchestras and then I very quickly realized that I don't want to do this without technique without yes. a proper education base mm. so then very late, I'd already turned 30 when I applied to the Sibelius Academy to the conductor's class and was accepted. So then all of that happened yeah. and took me to this direction where I sort of ended up. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, there's some similarities, you know, I mean, I did one year of conducting study at conservatoire level when I was sort of 19 or 20 with Jonathan Del Mar, and then I went into the profession as a violinist. I didn't really start conducting amateur orchestras until I was 32, something like oh. that, you yeah. know, the, 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 but then, as you said, you know, I, you know, I went, I went and had some lessons and you feel that you need, even after having sat in the CBS and watched Simon Rattle day in, day out um, and, and others who were coming in, you know, and then Zachary Oromo, I just realized, you know, I need some technical help. And yeah. and I know from others who've studied with Leif that you know I mean and I've played for Leif Segerstam <laughs> on two or three or four occasions, an, an amazing stick technician. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, as as long with the, the the you know the shouting in the forest thing that Dalia Stateska talked about, you know, um, the, the, you know he's a crazy man and he thinks of it from different levels. I mean, what what could what do you rely on now that Leif taught you back in those days? Oh, lots of things. 
one thing that I always remember that he used to say to us was because he be, he became really angry if somebody went in front of the orchestra during lessons and was not prepared. Mm. Those moments you will remember because he made it really unpleasant. And he told us why. And he said, you, you are such a privileged person who can, in front of all of these professional musicians who practice every day mm. to maintain their high technique level of their instruments, if you are the one to go in front of them and you can uh, have them doing your visions mm. of the music then you must do your homework yeah. otherwise you should get get out of there mm. and i think that's i mean i always had a good uh, work moral but it's a good thing to remember just the to be what is the word to never take yourself that seriously that you don't remember that you are only one person in this machinery and mm. without these players it will not sound yeah nothing happens we're completely yeah. depending on the yeah. players yeah and and didn't so covid kind of respect, respect didn't covid bring that didn't covid bring that home to all oh. conductors oh yeah you know oh, whilst yeah. you're we're sitting at home looking on facebook and the and musicians are uh, recording themselves in quartets yeah. or they're playing duos in their living room we sat there doing exactly. nothing. We we needed exactly. an orchestra, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, so he he taught us the respect for every musician, and of course he had lots of fantastic visions. That yeah. it was fabulous to listen to how he sees the pieces, how he sees the Sibelius symphonies, but also as you say, his technique that was mm. that is such uh, so precise. And I think for a teacher. That's a good thing to give to your students, to give that, that it was important to him that we have a beautiful technique. I mean, mm. then you can work on it forever. And all the he, he was maybe not always interested in the musical details. He could say that, ah, oh, the musicality, that's up to you and your decisions and you can do what you, you must work on that. But mm. he made sure that it should be clear for everybody to follow how you conduct. Yeah, and, and the good thing about that is it, it sounds uh, like he's got a method for teaching. You know, Leif Sagerstam is famously a very, very, very large man, both tall and in other directions. Um, uh, but it sounds like, you know, he, he could teach his views and on technique to anybody in it of any size and any shape. And, oh, yeah. and so, yeah, and, and, and we cannot all conduct like each other. We all have our own idiosyncrasies. Yeah. And it sounds like he takes it, uh, you know, the clarity is the important thing uh, and gives you the clues as to how to achieve it. Um, yes. But lets you be individuals if he's letting you make musical decisions and he's not impacting too much on that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I still get very happy whenever a musician in an orchestra comes to me and asks that, did you study with Leif? <laughs> I can sort of see it. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's a compliment. Yeah. If they can see his fantastic technique in some small level in my conducting, I'm happy. And it's not just the homework, you know, what you talking about him getting angry about being unprepared in front of an orchestra. It takes me back to something Martin Brabin said, you know, right back at the start of the podcast, he said, 
when you first start conducting, in terms of experience, you are a child. You are in kindergarten. You're stood in front of an orchestra with hundreds of years' experience, somebody there who could have been playing for 40 years in an orchestra. Exactly. Yeah, and we are just mere children at the kindergarten level learning how to do what we do. And if you go in there underprepared or ill-prepared, it's, yeah. it's, it's disrespectful more than anything else. Very disrespectful. And also we, we are aware of, but other people maybe don't think about it always, that we don't have any instrument at home to practice mm. on. We get the instrument there in front of everyone. So the level of preparation must be that much higher mm. to actually then be able to make it work mm. when the instrument arrives. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go on because other than Leif, there are five other names I've I've got from your website or from your agent's website of people that you had masterclasses with or you studied with for varying lengths of time. And they're all big names. I mean, there may even be others. But I wonder what you can take or how difficult was it to have studied with Leif Sagerstam and then have different input from Yorma Panela, Vladimir Yurovsky, John Carew, Esa Pekasalanin and Gustavo Dudamel. How easy is it to take some of those ideas and add it to Leif or did it mean that at some points you dropped things that Leif had said to you and took on other people's ideas? No, I never think I had to do that actually because also with the Sibelius Academy we had Leif most yeah. of our weeks but I mean we had orchestras almost every weekend so if Leif would do I don't know 10 weeks a year then maybe Jorma came in four weeks a year, let's mm. say. And then all the other weeks, we had whoever was guest conducting in town. Mm. So I had classes with Hannu Lint or uh, Saras that came to the class or Mikko Frank or foreigners. I mean, that is part of the system yeah. that you get the best of everyone, sort mm. of. And then mm. you have the professor who oversees the whole picture and tells you what you maybe need to work on on a longer term of course yes yeah but the master class idea is incorporated yeah. Yeah. we have both so i think uh, whenever i had the chance then to uh, i mean i was a part of the alliance conductors academy mm. so a whole year in london uh, then it was already for me natural that we only met somebody for three hours or during a week or something Mm. <clears throat> it sounds like a really good approach in the fact that yeah you've got a, a main mentor like Leif but then you take what you get from others because you see so many other people and also the other thing is you learn yeah. then that there are so many ways to skin a cat you know that it's not only done one way that you know you see other people use different language or use different types of gesture or a different pacing of rehearsal uh, and and then it it means that you know you can draw from all sorts of different people um yeah, I, I like it very much. I think, you know, conductors should be exposed to as many other conductors as possible. Um, and yeah. going all the way back to what you said about, you know, when we grew up, uh, and, and it, you would have seen it going to other people's rehearsals, not just the good, the bad as well. You know, we, we learn sometimes more from the bad than we do from the good. Uh, you... Yeah, that actually was also a part of the education that we were allowed to go to all the orchestra rehearsals around Sibelius Academy. Mm. So as often as I only could, 
I tried to go and always for their first days. I was most interested in yeah. the Mondays, so to yes, say. Yes, exactly. Dress rehearsal, it's already, then the work is done. Mm. But how do they do when they first meet the orchestra? And how mm. to get a good grip of it? So I thought it was really fascinating to follow. And as you say, I learned a lot what I should not do, what <laughs> did not work, and also these fantastic things that, oh God, yeah, how beautifully they, how they solved some issues with no effort at all. I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot onto my next question by talking about what you just said there. You know, if you only turn up on a Wednesday for the dress rehearsal, you've missed. If let's say it's a good conductor, you've missed how it got to be so good. Exactly. But also, if you turn up on the Wednesday and it's somebody that they the orchestra and the, and the conductor are not gelling, you've missed the reason why. And the reason why normally happens on Monday or sometimes Tuesday or whatever it is. Yes. And so you're so right in in that you know seeing the early rehearsals is is perfect. Yeah. And the re and how I'm going to pivot is, you know, I look as I said I've looked at your CV and your agent's website and the the list of orchestras that you've guested with and worked with is very very impressive. But we all do this when we start conducting is guest conducting those blind dates where you go out and. Um, how did you find that where we, week after week it's it might, it might not be repertoire that you're unfamiliar with but it's definitely an orchestra that you're unfamiliar with yeah I, I should say those first years it was almost always also the repertoire not familiar I yes. did all the time new new music and new pieces and I must say I think I live with a stomach ache <laughs> for a couple of years always being stressed out and always nervous and as you say oh and how will that orchestra respond and, and mm. will am I I think the main question for me was always am I enough well prepared for mm. this week because mm. when you don't have any experience how will you know mm. you could always have prepared more you could always have done better uh, but uh, with the experience and with the years that has come, I think I've realized that now I know what it takes mm. to have a nice week, to have a week where I can actually also enjoy the orchestra and enjoy the work we do together. And that's, I think, why we work so hard. We aim for that uh, feeling during the meeting with the orchestras that it actually works. This is nice. We can do something here. But it's hard. It's really yeah. hard those first years. I know Hannu Linto told us once in class that when we asked him, how on earth can I hear everything in this Richard Strauss score? I mean, how mm. can you have time to follow every line? And, and he said, oh, guys, you just need to relax. It, it will take 10 years until your ears will open up. Mm. And there is something in it, isn't it? Yes, I think you're right. Yes. And I, th yeah. I think the homework has a lot to do with it because... If you've gone and you're well prepared to a new orchestra, so for instance, I went to Lati recently for the first time. It was a, a, a program of film music, all music that I'd conducted an awful lot before. So I, I knew the music very, very, very well. It meant that from the minute I started, my ears could be open to the orchestra to hear how the orchestra play, how they respond, you know, which sections respond at different times to it. You know, and, and it's very difficult to do that if you're stood in front of, as you rightly said, and, and you know, we all do this, a, a programme of music you've been asked to go and conduct, you're going to go, yeah, I'll come and conduct your orchestra. What do you want me to conduct? And then it's three pieces you've never conducted before. <laughs> uh, and, and you're stood there and, and even with the most, the best will in the world, you know, 
you've now got an extra thing on your shoulders. Not only are you trying to open your ears, but you're dealing with music that you've you you've yet to feel in your hands and in your in your arms and in your soul yeah. and in your body. It's it yeah. is hard. Yeah. It is hard, but it gets easier. Also, yeah. the also my own technique. Those first years, you're yeah. searching for your own technique. How can I do this? But when that becomes more fluent and it works better, then I think it's really more easy. And then you get the routine, and you have done stuff, and you have done some of the music before. Mm. It's not always the first time when you do a symphony for the third time. It's yeah. like oh. That's so much better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what happens is over the years, and I'm sure this is how your first uh, job came about in 2010, over the years you go to orchestras repeatedly and you start to form relationships and do repertoire again. And um, it, surely it was during one of those repeat visits um, that you became, in 2010, uh, the chief of the Ulu Symphony Orchestra. And... I want to add on top of this, I read this, uh, it, surely it's true, it's on Wikipedia, so it must be true. Uh, <laughs> you, you're the, you were the first female to head a Finnish symphony orchestra as chief conductor. Um, That's true. It's true. Did you That's feel true. any pressure because of that? Or, um, or or was it, you know, you just thought, well, I've got the job, I've got the job I wanted, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm now a chief conductor. How did it feel? Well, of course, I felt enormously pressure from getting such a job straight out of the school, straight yeah. out of the Sibelius Academy almost. Yeah, it was only two years before right. I was. I mean, I was probably appointed the year after I finished school or something, and then it started 2010. Yeah. So that was uh, a heavy thing on my shoulders. And it was, of course, terribly early, but I think I learned a lot from it. Mm. And it was not because of that I was the first woman that it felt like that. I mean, no. I never took any interest in that particular mm. thing. I think it was Nadja Boulanger who said when they asked how it felt to be a woman conductor that I've got some 50 years time to, to how do you say, to get used to the facts. I'm not so fascinated by it anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. I, yeah. I'm yeah. used to it already. So, yeah. yeah, and I don't know how the opposite would feel. So no, it's, it's just something you do, but it's hard to yeah. be a conductor. That's yes. for sure. Yeah, it's, it's like Natalie Stutzman said, uh, I, it may have been one of the answers for her 10 in uh, 10 questions, what would you change about being a conductor? She said, I'd love people to just drop the word female in front of the word conductor yeah. and just call oh. us conductors. You know, and she's yeah. right. She's absolutely right. But at this moment in time, with that, it seems to be tacked on the front all of the time. Um, yeah. yeah. But as you said, if you're only one or two years out of out of conservatory, out of the uh, Sibelius Academy, that is more, much more of a pressure because you know you're yes. you're fairly fresh in the in the business. Yeah. Um, you've also done a lot of opera as well, I see. And currently, because we're going to go on to the BBC Concert Orchestra very soon, where you're pr currently principal guest, but do you try and do an opera every year? Because, you know, as the listeners will know, opera takes time, um, especially new productions. You, you could be there six weeks or so. Is that something you you try and do every year if possible? And, and how much do you love the variety from the one week here, one week there symphonic work? 
I actually love the variety of getting both symphonic uh, yeah. work combined with operas, because I think being one week here and there, it's getting tiring during mm. a season. And at some point, I want to get a little bit like relaxation from that traveling all the time and new pieces all the time. And then for me, if I have an opera production, it's like a semi-holiday yeah, yeah, <laughs> sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. And don't misunderstand it. It's like eight hours piano rehearsals every day and lots yeah. of problems and stuff to learn and all that and big machinery. But it's the same piece for many mm. weeks. It's and the same piece colleagues. in the same place. Yeah. You, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't have yeah. to travel. You get colleagues. You can go to coffee. Uh, for coffee with people and you you get to know the singers a little bit and it's actually really nice so it has been i think one or two every season mm. I, I know some seasons i've had three operas which from them was two contemporary first performances mm. and that's too much i yeah. realized that three is an awful lot to learn mm. and the third opera i had never done before either although it was a verdi so, I mean, then, then I think I realized I, I can't take on all of, the, all of this work because I didn't have any holiday at all that year. I just studied opera for mm. summer. Mm. So one it would be perfect. One every year would be perfect. <laughs> it, well, it's something I'd love to do more of. And I, you know, but to have that feeling, as you said, of six, seven weeks with the same piece, with the same people forming relationships rather than blind yes. dates and and even when you're going to you know from a blind date to an orchestra that you already know and, and respect and love because you've been there many times it's still there's the traveling in between and there's you know yeah. getting homeward turning your suitcase around doing all of that so it's it becomes rather manic and it's it'd be nice to have six weeks just you know True. in one place and also the fact that you do more than one performance that you mm. put in all of that all of that work and then yeah. you can have like five or ten performances of the same piece yeah that's also fantastic because you develop in other directions thanks to it. And I think that's really interesting. Also, of course, then you get the situation with the musicians being ill and you just have people coming in for the performance. No yeah. rehearsals whatsoever, but it's also fun. It's also mm. a challenge and it's lots of fun. Yeah. In 2020, I just mentioned the BBC Concert Orchestra. And in 2020, you became principal guest conductor and it's been extended to 2024. They're such a versatile and lovely orchestra. I'm working with them in June uh, again. Um, how did that first come about? And, and did you feel instantly that there was a bond between you and them? Yeah, you know, they used to say that sometimes it clicks between mm. a conductor and the orchestra. Mm. And this absolutely happened with them. I knew from the first time that I loved this group of people. Yeah, uh, It's as you say, they're, the speed with how they work, how fast they develop from one day to the other, the versatility. And I, I just uh, knew that we get along really well. It's something with the humor, the sense mm. of humor mm. with British people, I suppose. Yeah. But with that orchestra, uh, especially, that uh, I think we just really uh, get along very well. It's a very open orchestra an orchestra that you feel are inquisitive about what you want, an orchestra who you feel immediately, yeah, they really want to get this right and they really want to to move together in a, in a specific direction. Um, 
you know, I, I got this uh, privilege of doing uh, almost always with them. I do strictly classical repertoire. Mm. And then I don't mean the period, but yes. I mean uh, classical music from past century or whatever. Yeah. And I feel, I think that's something what I really like with them. They don't have the routine of getting bored of the mm. traditional repertoire. It's a little bit the opposite, that they actually really turn on getting to play Sibelius or Beethoven, or it's like they are fresh. They love mm. to do it. And that is something I, that I really appreciate, that they come in with open eyes and with the joy of, yeah, we can do this very well. Mm. I, it, it, I always think back to concerts I've done with them where one half will be, as you call it, standard classical music, and the other half could be something jazzy. You know, mm. I, 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 you know I, I'm thinking of concerts in my head, you know, something uh, we did a Duke Ellington suite in the second half, having played a jazz cello concerto in the first half, and a standard overture by their then music director Bram Wotovi and then you know other concerts I've done with them you know where we did David Bedford pretty hardcore you know contemporary 70s 80s music and the second half was an arrangement of tubular bells that is what they do and to switch is they're very happy to do that switch but they're always inquisitive about you know all of the genres um so yeah I mean they're a wonderful orchestra and very interesting programming because mm. of this, because of the versatility, I think they really, they know how to combine different things. And even if we stay with the so-called classical repertoire, I think the programming and how they built a concert program is fascinating. I learned a lot from them. Mm. I think maybe we both learn from each other. Now, I was a bit cheeky in the fact that uh, I know that your your principal guest contract has been extended to 2024. But because I have a dear, I have many friends in the BBC Guns Orchestra, but one particular dear friend who let me let me know and let it slip that actually you're going to be or uh, the next chief conductor. Um, that must be a wonderful thing to find an orchestra you love, form a relationship with, have a an, a, an engagement, and then you're going to get married. Uh, how, yes. You know, yeah, exactly. How how. Um, <laughs> Are you, are you are you looking forward to it? I mean, I know things things are a bit difficult at the BBC at the moment, which we won't necessarily go into. But what a what a wonderful thing to have happen very soon for you. Yes, I am very very grateful for this opportunity, and it feels really natural. I think I have for years already, although I was only the principal guest, I've been referring to them as my dear orchestra in London. I mean, mm. it's like it has felt a little bit like the engagement <laughs> was very serious mm. so yeah. yeah 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 it's a lovely thing i am looking forward tremendously yeah well good for you and because it's an orchestra i've conducted on a fair few occasions um very happy for you because i know how bloody good they are um yeah, and you know I, i'm keeping my fingers crossed that they stay as they are in the near future and you know and, and common do. yeah common sense prevails um, yeah, rather than the ridiculous thing that we're all going, or they're all going through at the moment. Anna-Maria, you may or may not be aware, but there is an 11th question. Of course, we have the famous 10 questions to come, but the 11th question is about score preparation. Okay. And I always ask, how do you go about learning a score? Do you use somebody uh, who sits at the piano and looks at a score, or do you do it with your inner ear? Do you start big and go into small details? And for the geeks, of which I am definitely one, are you a scribbler? Do you use red, blue, black and highlighters? Or do you not write anything in your scores at all? How do you go about it, please, Anna Maria? 
Yeah, I definitely write in them. That's why I try to uh, keep every score. I tend to buy scores mm. for myself. Um, it's a little different from time to time, but I think one system that I'm using very often is to, of course, I look at the big picture first. Yeah. But then I really, from the very beginning, I start by analyzing the whole thing. Mm. I do a harmonic analyze of it. And by doing so, I get through every note of the score, actually. Mm. So I will uh, detect any misprints. I will have all my question marks really clear after that. Mm. Uh, places where I think this might be a wrong note, this might be a mistake or something. Um, even with contemporary music, I go through them like mm. that, even if it wouldn't be tonal. Mm. I still read them from beginning to end sort of harmonically or from up to down or something, uh, bar by bar, really. Yeah. And then I tend to go uh, more horizontally, horizontally and uh, divide it into phrasing, uh, big chunks and smaller chunks. Um, and by then I have a, quite a good picture. And then it depends on the score. If it's really complicated, I might go to the piano uh, to play some bits to get a grip of how it actually might sound. Um, I used for many years to play through every score I conducted mm. on the piano. But lately I realized I will not do it just for the sake of doing it. If I know a piece, I know a piece. And uh, it's just, uh, if it's a piece I've never done before, um, it might be good to play through because I also, by that, I realize what's not natural or what's natural or mm. how I would have played it automatically. And uh, I get a sense of the music in a way by doing that. But sometimes it's enough that I, you know, if it's a fairly simple score, you, you hear it more easy. And only if it's complicated, I use some help. Mm. And then, of course, the real work starts with deciding on how I want it to sound and how I want to phrase it and how I want to do it, which tempos. And, and um, also with routine, you start to see already when you read the score, I know where the uh, problematic spots will be, what will not work easily or mm. what will take more time to rehearse or stuff like that. And it's interesting, you know, looking at pieces that have been out there a long time. And if you go through doing a harmonic analysis, you can spot wrong notes. But even with a piece that's brand new and the ink is still drying and it's never been heard by anybody, you can spot things, can't you? And you've got, you can send questions to the composer because you've Absolutely. gone through it in, in detail and thought, well, actually, that doesn't make too much mm -hmm. sense. It, you know, yeah. I wonder whether that is actually a misprint and they've just missed it in the proofreading stage. Um, I do a lot of that. I can mm. have like full A4 pages with with the misprints yeah. that I find because it's hard to find them yourself. You get blind to your own work. And of course you can see it doesn't have to be tonal or performed before because you see the systems, you see the models, how they use motives. Yeah, yeah. you see if, their language, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if everyone is unis at a certain uh, let's say a certain motive and then somebody has another note very often it's a misprint but of course you need to be careful because there are also contemporary composers doing these 
I don't know the term for it, but that they little by little change gradually. So there yes. will always be somebody playing, let's say, not as the other ones. Mm. Yeah, it's so the, the a theme starts fragmenting or splintering apart, or yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, you have to be careful, and uh, but I mean, it's always worthwhile just just send it, firing them an email, uh, and just double checking. Do you, as so many conductors do, but some occasionally don't? Do you listen to recordings of um, at any stage in the process of a music of music that you're doing that has been recorded? Yes, I do. Uh, but I'm very strict with not listening before I've gone through the score very thoroughly. Mm. So it's only when I'm done with uh, a lot of the preparations and when I think now I have a good grip of this, then if it's a, a piece that belongs to the standard repertoire, I think I need to know how other people mm. have been doing it. You need to know something about the tradition of the piece. Mm. So, but I'm. I also don't listen many times to the same uh, recording. I try yes. to pick a few and listen to some different. If I have time, then I listen maybe to two or three different recordings. I'm doing Shostakovich eight next season um, with the CBSO, and mm -hmm. you know I've already started you know, downloading. I think the seventh, eighth, ninth recording. And I'm, you know, sort of uh, searching around YouTube for live performances. And, and, you know, whilst I do have my favourites, but, you know, I don't want to listen to, I don't want to listen to the same one over and over again. I want to see what other people are doing, especially Russian conductors who who might have a tradition. It's the same mm -hmm. with, you know, if you're going to conduct Sibelius as an Englishman, I'd be stupid not to listen to Pavo Berglund or Sakari Oromo, though I was playing on those records, so that doesn't count. Um, but, you know, you, you would listen to, you know, all sorts of different Absolutely. recordings from from the tradition from you know the hit from history Absolutely and also to remember that the orchestras uh, bury a lot of tradition in themselves mm. Barry Lund you might want to hear him with the Helsinki Phil if he's doing Sibelius because Helsinki Philharmonic has been playing all the Sibelius symphonies mm. a lot and they were like the Sibelius orchestra Yeah or say if you are going to Russian music, it's good with a Russian conductor, but you might also want to have Leningrad or Moscow. Absolutely, or... yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly true, yeah, exactly. Dear listener, please don't reach for that little button that advances this episode on by 30 seconds, just because you know I'm about to talk about Patreon. Because over recent months, my Patreon page has expanded, and you may be interested to know how the supporters club of this podcast is developing. There's over 40 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers, as well as many bonus episodes that accompany this podcast. I've written an article on score marking, a set of diaries from my trips guest conducting, I've started a series of articles on the art of programming, and recently posted an article about a very interesting way of remembering metronome markings. Did you know that you can even have conducting lessons from myself? All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Anna Maria Helsing. Anna Maria, it is the time that is inescapable for everybody I interview, and it's the 10 questions. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I can start with the hate. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, as everybody, I absolutely hate when someone is drilling in mm. the next room, you know, in a hotel or where you live. Yeah. That's absolutely not standable. No. But I also hate any sudden noise very nearby. You know, the noise that buses sometimes can mm. have when they drive past you and suddenly comes this that's mm. a terrible noise because you can't predict it and you can't uh, you can't protect yourself from it no. simply mm. i would also say i hate all noises that are not natural mm. even in the helsinki airport they started having a bird song in oh the i know yes i flew through there the other day yeah 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 and of course in a way that's better than some silly music but you know for me it's like Oh no, some bird has got caught here. How can I help it to escape? It shouldn't be here. Yeah. It used to so, only be in the toilets at Helsinki Airport, but now it seems to be everywhere. Um they seem to have right. expanded it around the around the concourse and, and you know and you just think I understand why they did it in the toilets, but I don't get it everywhere else. Well, um yeah, well. it's it is an odd thing, but anyway. It is and uh, that maybe leads on to the sounds I love. Those are maybe natural sounds then, sounds mm. in the right environment. I love bird songs uh, when it's at my cabin by the mm. sea or when it's in the forest and all those kind of things, you know, a breeze of um, the wind going through the trees or, mm. or why not a cat purring in your knee. That's mm. nice. <laughs> this is where I, my jealousy of... Uh, the Finns, uh, who have their summer <laughs> summer cabin on an island yeah. in a lake or in a forest, or the Norwegians yeah. who also have a similar thing, you know, a cabin at the end of a long track somewhere which they go and disappear to for the weekend. My God, yeah. I'd love one of those, but they, they just don't exist in the UK. Um, uh, yeah, it's a shame. You know, we have to it go is. off and find beauty spots, and then there's probably a coachload of other people there. So it's not oh. very it's not very isolating or solitary. It's a shame. I feel for you. um number three and it sort of links in with the solitary nature possibly of being at your cabin but if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing yeah but i can say that when i have more than 24 hours free i love going to the cabin Mm. because then i'm by the sea on a on a small small uh, island Mm. there i can do my own wood chopping and go fishing living the kind of life that's impossible during the season yeah yeah. so i I would love this being uh somewhere where i don't have to travel probably Mm. and with people i love of course and when you go to your your cabin how long does it take you for well simon rattle calls it the soundtrack that's in our head he said, you know, as a child, he just thought everybody had this constant music soundtrack going through their brain. We have it going all of the time when we're working. Um, how long does it take you for that soundtrack to disappear and turn off? I mean, is it the minute you get there or, you know, you notice 24 hours in, my, actually my mind is now gone blank and, and musical thoughts have gone? I think that depends a little bit on uh, in what kind of mind... Uh, what state of mind I have when I arrive if I've had a really stressful time with lots of stuff lately then it will take longer and if I've had like a poco a poco coming (laughs) down period then it's of course more easy to adapt at once Mm. but I think it for sure takes some time and that's also why I say I need more than 24 hours yeah 
because um, I think the first week I'm just settling down, sort of. I'm starting to get there. Mm. And then the real relaxation starts when I'm there week and week in a row. Well, again, jealous, very jealous. Yeah, I get that. (laughs) Yeah, very jealous. Uh, Number four, who would be your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? I adore a lot of conductors, really. I think they have had so many good things, but I would always love to watch Claudio Abado or Kleiber or um, Maris Janssons, Mm. all these great guys simply that in those days great guys <laughs> yeah. One can say. not yeah, so yeah. many women around no. then whoever you can feel that really is in the music and mm-hmm. honestly tries to to show us their inner inner world of it mm-hmm. uh, and three very visually appealing conductors you've chosen you know abado jansons and obviously i'm assuming you meant carlos kleiber um because you know that there are there are videos of eric kleiber but he was less visually appealing than his son um but uh, whilst we obviously we listen hard to what they're putting you know what they're communicating musically it's almost impossible not to notice how beautiful they were as conductors you know visually to watch yes all three of them. I think I, I'm quite weak for the aesthetics of the <laughs> profession also, although many say it doesn't matter at all and it's all about other things, which is, it, of course, is. But it never hurts that you can actually see what they mean, that you can yeah. actually really, really easily get the message. That's yes. what it's about, maybe. Yeah. Well, going on to the harder of the two questions in the middle of this, uh, your favourite current conductor or conductors, uh, I wonder whether any of those are equally visually appealing. Yeah, I think I can't give you any names, really, of current conductors. It's because it's so... It's a little bit like a sensitive subject, I think. But, <laughs> yeah. but let's say uh, there are many I, I really admire, and uh, I, I tend to notice that I admire those who have the courage to do something differently, yes. something personal of the standard repertoire. And of course, I'm also tremendously uh, proud of all the Finns out mm. there. I can mm. say that I think we have something in common often. And I, I sort of really, I'm proud of the idea that Finnish conductors tend to come with some kind of quality. Mm. Well, I always allow the answer that I you know, that you can't give an answer because there are so many. Yeah. Um, there's only been one who just refused to answer it because I still don't know to this day why he refused to answer it. Uh, but he basically, uh, but uh, you know, by saying that there are so many, I you know, I, I agree with you. I, there are so many, um, and especially even to say there are so many Finns, and I wonder, you know, have whether Yorma Panela is. One of the major reasons for that, I mean, the guy is now in his 90s and still teaching mm. and has been in probably, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of a Finnish conductor who probably hasn't been taught by Yorma Panela at some point. Um, yeah. Are there any? I mean, I don't know. Um, but, you know, you, even if you think about this country, how many Finns have, have had jobs in, in the UK? Uh, it's, it's amazing. And we seem to love playing for Finnish conductors. 
Um, uh, and yeah. again, of course, el elsewhere in the world, not you know, not just the UK, the Scandinavia, Germany, everywhere. Um, but it is an amazing thing, amazing for such for a country with such a small population that so many great conductors come from there. Absolutely, absolutely, it is. It has become a, a trademark in itself, sort of. Mm. Yeah, and I think, of course, it's when somebody's. I mean, I grew up seeing Finnish conductors on TV. Yes. I grew up seeing Sarasten and Sapekka and Saloden and all these, Okko Kamu, Pabo Berlund, and Leif. So it is nothing strange that we sort of feel that, well, Finns can do that, of course. So maybe mm -hmm. I could. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's this thing that just keeps happening. <laughs> Hmm. Keeps getting more and more of us. Yeah, yeah. Conductors and rally drivers. That seems to be. The way. Oh, I'm sorry for that one. <laughs> Maybe it's because you've got so many tracks going through forests and people have learned to drive on them fast. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Well, there uh, is some similarity between those two, I would say. Uh, because yes. I think we have the pulse will be up there <laughs> yeah, for both of us. Yeah, exactly. Racing pulse, yeah. absolutely. We don't need any extreme sports because we are conductors. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> <yeah>, absolutely. <laughs> Number six is, what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I th uh, that's a difficult question as well, because I, when I think about it, I realized that looking back when I was starting in this profession, I think it was all the contemporary pieces that were so demanding in a mm. way. Mm. And I remember struggling with uh, maybe Magnus Lindbergh clarinet concerto back Ooh, in yeah. the days. And uh, I had some, oh, I had a really tough one with Pavo Heinen, an oratory for soloists, choir, and big orchestra. Mm. And it came, it is a long time ago already, and it changed the uh, metronome tempo. Uh, many times at every page and it was I don't remember how many pages but the piece was something like uh, I don't know 45 minutes or something mm. and I thought it would absolutely kill me because it was too <laughs> much information and too much to to get through but I think if I would do the same pieces today they wouldn't be as hard anymore mm. so maybe nowadays hard works can be something really simplistic Mm. which can be hard in the sense that what do I want to do with this piece? Mm, you know what absolutely. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that, maybe, I would mm. answer. Well, going back to your two contemporary pieces, uh, the one with the the, the oratory, oratorio with you know, different metronome marks and whatever else, they're always frightening because, you know, you've got to hit these things. I have mm. conducted the Limburg Clarinet Concerto, and what I will say to any listener is, that Lindbergh is very difficult to conduct, but there is almost always a logical connection between the two tempos that you have. So exactly. often in Lindbergh, I've written in my score, as whilst I'm conducting at one tempo, think quintuplets. Yes, and then exactly. the quintuplet becomes the se the next semiquavers. Or, or, you know, <laughs> there, there is almost always a mathematical uh, yep. correlation between the two it just means that at some point you're conducting in one, one tempo was thinking of five beats in a bar across it that then that's the next tempo but there is almost always one there's almost always a link whereas there are other music where you've just got to pluck a metronome mark out of the thin air and that's an awful lot harder when there is no 
uh, instinctive or organic link between yeah. one temple and another. I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly the difference between those two examples I gave you. Mm. Uh, and then in when you have once you have learned it, the Lindbergh doesn't have to be hard at all because no. of these relations. Mm. While Paavo Heininen, I asked him about it. He was then alive. And I asked him, why do you change the tempo all the time? Mm. And he said, because as soon as it settles, I want to break it again. It, I, he never wanted it to settle for too long. Mm. Mm. So that's why it couldn't be any relation. He wanted to break the system of it. Yeah. So and then it's really hard. You must just hit a new tempo without any help whatsoever. Mm. Yeah, and and that is that is a real skill as a conductor to. I always I've said it out loud on this podcast, and and I played for hundreds of conductors in my career. But the best conductor I ever saw at showing you the next tempo was Zachary Oromo. Um, yeah. he, he's a master at it, an absolute master at it. Some conductors just struggle to do it. And it's one of the hardest, if not the, the hardest thing we have to do technically is to show a new tempo, faster or slower. Um, you know, it, it's yeah. so tough. And, and if you've got a 40 minute piece that's doing that all of the time, which it sounds like it, it is, that's, well, that's hard. That's really, 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 really tough. Yeah, that's so. Oh. You mean the way he prepares the next tempo? Is that the preparation? Well, the, the preparation, but also the clarity of showing yeah. you where that second mm. beat is in that new tempo. That know, that's you know, a real skill to show you the journey from you know you give the first beat and then you need the journey of the stick or hand to the next beat to give yeah. you that split second knowledge. Oh, it's that slow, or oh, it's that yeah. fast. You know, I exactly. think he's a he's a master at that, or the master at it that I played for. Um, yeah, yeah love well, that, to hear. That, that, yeah, that sounds like a tough piece. The minute you get settled, I'm going to change the tempo. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you if you'd ever conducted an orchestra, you'd stop writing music like that. <laughs> well, maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. Um, Great. Number seven. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I'm actually very uh, easy with these things. I don't always bring something, but... Perhaps I could say that my my headphones, my sound reducing headphones, mm. I would always want in my bag because if you, not only for the reason that I might want to listen to something, but if you have a screaming child in the airplane <laughs> behind you, yeah. they really help, yeah. <laughs> they help a lot. Or even in the next door room in the hotel that you're there for, a, you know, a week. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, it's. I think it's possibly the most popular answer. But I never, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm never going to ban it because um, I think it's something that we do rely on so often. Um, you yeah. know, when you're doing a long, long haul flight to get to sleep or to be able to listen to what you want to listen to or just to block out the annoying child. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, perfectly valid and, and sensible answer. And, it, and it, I must, I must say, it doesn't have to be a child that is annoying. It can be absolutely adults uh, having <laughs> yeah. a conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a volume level that it's impossible to work next to them. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I've been there. We've all been there and done that. Uh, number eight. Anything you like, real or fantasy. Um, number eight is what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor. Can I say more than one thing? Of course you can, yes. Please do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I would change one thing that 
there would never be misprints in scores anymore, <laughs> especially when it comes to pieces that have been played for uh, several hundred years, yeah. many thousand times. I mean, come on. And yeah. there would not be bad editions. Mm. Uh, if somebody would just fix that, it would be great. And then I think I might want to change. Yes, also the thing about getting scores too late. Oh, I'm yes. always chasing scores from orchestra and they, they, the package doesn't arrive or it arrives at the wrong address at the wrong time and it's always too late not always but so often too late and it messes up my whole schedule and my calendar and then I have to work during nights or something to to fix it simply so yeah. that would be great all scores uh, correct in good time <laughs> and then maybe time. no travels no yes. troubles. Just pushing a button and you're where you should be. That yeah. would be great. Like Star Trek. We, we just sort of beamed, beamed <laughs> to the next place. Yeah. I agree with you on both of those. Um, I mean, it's part of the art of being a conductor. And going back to the 11th question about learning and marking up your scores is the fact that if you've got something in the diary that's 14, 15 months away, no, I, I've got scores on my desk next to me that I know I'm going to be conducting in a year's time to try and get them marked up and, and learnt and ready in advance so that if a score arrives really late, I've got time to cram learn it quickly. Or if a whole programme, or you, or you have to do a jump in and there's a concerto you've never conducted or something, you've got 48 hours to learn it. Yeah. But the other thing about the, the wrong notes, I mean, and partly, dear listener, this is often because publishing houses bring out new editions of things. We've found this. We've discovered that. Well, this is the new Urtext, as written by Mozart, Haydn, whoever. Mm. And and that's also partly for them to make money. <clears throat> but sure. but yeah, these new editions come out and you think, well, hang on a minute. That note was always an F sharp. Why is it not an F sharp anymore? Uh, and and uh, you know you look at it and go, but isn't this is supposed to be what's printed there? And it just turns out it was just a misprint. And you think, surely after all these years, you'd get it right. Um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it is so annoying. It's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> um, another real or fantasy question um, is number nine, which is what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, it would have to be fantasy because I love my profession as yes. it is, but. Um, I think I would um, be quite a good priest or a psychologist or something like that, mm. taking care of people in a way. Yeah. I might but, like that. Maybe not as a profession, but I mean as, a, as something that would interest me. Yeah, yeah. But then that's sort of what we have to do as well. Not the priest bit, but okay. <laughs> well, I suppose, I don't know, you, oh, do, you have actually bit. got to convince somebody of your you know, of your story. But the psychology thing, I think, you know, if you're not interested in the psychology of the orchestra that you're conducting and how people are thinking when you're conducting and when they're playing, no. I don't think you're doing your job properly. That's It's such a big part of the job to yeah. actually know when to say what and when to not say Absolutely. things yeah. and how, mm. to, how to interact with a group of people. Mm. Mm. Absolutely you know. true. And about the priest thing, I think it's similar to building a concert program. How do you get the audience uh, to, how do you get their, how do you say, attention, let's yes. say. Yeah. I think for the priest, this may be about how do you speak? How do you get their interest to 
awake. And I think mm. we can do a little bit of that also. The dramaturgy of a concert could be like the dramaturgy of a of a sermon, maybe. It's very true. Uh, and like a sermon, you know, if you're especially if you're doing, and it's popped into my head because we talked about Lati earlier on. You know, it was a concert of film music with about 15 or 16 pieces of music in it. But you have to put them in the right order so that the, the audience members go on a journey. Um, exactly. You want them to, they want, there needs to be a low point, there needs to be a high point mm. in each half as well. And then think Absolutely. about the overall arch of the thing. It's very important that you, you get your order and your choices correct um, so that people come out of their understanding you know yeah. what, what yeah. you were trying to say or what you you know the point of it was and it's no different with a a more classical in inverted commas concert you know when you've just got an opener and a concerto and a symphony that you know you you do need to plan the journey and and take them on the journey um yeah, yeah. it's it's very true very 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 true yeah and finally and it's still after 130 odd episodes my favorite question if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink oh gosh it it could be something uh, from my mom's repertoire something she used to cook for us when we mm. were small and it could also just be a really good pasta dish or yeah. some japanese uh, sashimi sushi whatever mm. i mean i love food so i i can't choose yeah yeah oh, uh, my mind sways all of the time between you know a good chinese or a wonderful mm -hmm. argentinian steak or as you said italian a wonderful italian pasta dish it can be oh. very simple um yeah. and, and of course if you're going to have various different cuisines from around the world the choice of drink changes as well i mean if we went walked yeah. into a bar tomorrow what would you ask for if we uh, 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 if i bought was buying the round i think i'd like some pure water from scandinavia finland or iceland or sweden or norway mm. uh, to go with a nice uh, red wine but i might also want to start with a light beer just yes. for you know the <laughs> to cool yourself down a little bit and then go for the red wine. <laughs> it sounds like we've found a subject we could talk about for a while because I'm very into food and drink as well. <laughs> it sounds Lovely. like you can't make up your mind either. So. No, I can't. No way. <laughs> well, I've often said this at the end of my podcast that hopefully one day we can meet over a meal or a drink and carry on chatting. But I think we'd have a great amount of fun if we did. So let's hope that we do do that. And next time you're in London, Absolutely. I can come down and we can have a, uh, whatever we fancy to eat and whatever we fancy to drink. So thank you for coming on the podcast, Anna Maria. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an American conductor who started out conducting marching bands and wind bands, but has gone on to have a flourishing orchestral and operatic career, being especially well known for conducting contemporary music with groups such as Ensemble 1010 in the UK. He's also very well known for his association with the Royal Northern College of Music, where he's been teaching conducting for many years. But until then, bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>